This is an EM Pulse Heartbeat with your host, Julia Magana. Welcome back and Happy New Year. I hope you had a wonderful holiday season. I know I did, even if I was around working for some parts of it. If you're an emergency medicine provider or a peds provider, you likely know the name PCARN. Maybe you've whispered PCARN reverently for answering important questions that we all need to know on a shift. Or maybe you've thrown it at a trauma surgeon who wanted yet another head CT. Or maybe if you work as a clinician at a PCARN site like I do, you've kind of muttered it as a curse word at the end of a long shift when you're filling out yet another dang survey. <laughs> Whatever your relationship to that name, you are likely familiar. But you may not remember that PCARN stands for Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network. This powerhouse was actually the first federally funded PEDS emergency medicine research network in the U.S., and it generates quality studies like nobody's business. While I may mutter PCARN at the end of a swing shift, I actually did come to UC Davis in part because I believed in the PCARN machine, and I wanted to help out in any way that I could. We have reviewed three landmark PCARN studies since EMPulse started. For example, Hot Off the Press, Infant Fever Rule, DKA, It's Not About the Fluids, and A Cool Tool, which was a TBI shared decision tool. And in the next few months, we will discuss seizure management and talk about Pediatric Emergency Research Network, or PERN. So we thought this was a good time to really understand this powerhouse, the machine of PCARN that is affecting us from shift to shift. What is the history? Why is this important? And what is the future of PCARN? To do this, I sat down with Dr. Nate Cooperman, who's a PEDS emergency medicine clinician and chair of emergency medicine here at UC Davis. Dr. Cooperman has been involved in PCARN since its inception in 2001, and he's still a key leader at PCARN. Let's start off by hearing the story of how was PCARN started? What is its birth story? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a long story. It goes way back to the 1700s. No, but I'll, tell you, um, but I'll just give you an abbreviated history. We started doing collaborative research in peds emergency medicine somewhat formally in the 1990s because we realized that to study pediatric acute care and, and outcomes, you needed bigger numbers than you do in adults because adverse outcomes in kids are just less common. So at the AAP, there has been a collaborative, it's called the PEDS Emergency Medicine Collaborative Research Committee. And I chaired that for five years. And one of the big articles that we got done that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine was a case control study of DKA and looking for risk factors for cerebral edema, which is, an, as you know, an area of great controversy. And I think people noticed that in that committee, we were doing some good work so a year or two later, there was a group of project officers from several federal funding agencies that met with a group of us in Peds Emergency Medicine. I'm hearkening back to the day, but Steve Ludwig was there. I was there, David Jaffe. And they were asking, how do we take collaborative Peds Emergency Medicine research to the next level? And the answer was easy money. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, my initial vision was that they would just, we would apply and deliver money to the AAP and the AAP would be the center of this network and there would be spokes, that is, lots of different institutions that would be participating. Well, that's not exactly how it played out. It came out as a 
request for application and RFA in 2001 for this demonstration grant to show how we could collaborate together. But the way the RFA came out was that they were asking for applications for groups of what they called nodes. A node is a collection of hospitals. There was four potential nodes plus a separate call for a data center. So PCARN then started as 2002. So we had infrastructure money, but that was not enough money to get big research projects done. So we first had to do some simpler, smaller things to get published as we were then chasing other federal money to do research projects. So we created something called the PCARN Core Data Project, which was just a repository of data about with maybe 10 elements about every patient that we saw in our EDs continually so that we could write a little bit about long bone fractures and asthma, et cetera, while we were chasing grants. We did that a bit and got published. And at the same time, we were devising a research priority list, which we did with the formal priority process, and we published that. But then we decided we have to do a big randomized trial to really plant our flagpole as a uh, potent network. So at the time, there had been a publication, a small publication, 70 patients or so who were randomized to steroids or not. And the investigator found that steroids like halved the hospitalization rate. And that really caught our attention because, first of all, nobody had ever shown that before. And we also felt in PCARN that, wow, before like a trillion babies get exposed to steroids, which we don't know the impact of steroids on the brain of a three-month-old, et cetera, why don't we study this in PCARM? Because it's just a single dose of steroids and a simple intervention that we think we can do with the limited infrastructure money that we had. So it was around 2005 or so, we did this big randomized trial and halfway through we had enrolled 300 patients showing that we could do it. Then we applied for a grant. We got our first external grant, which was for $800,000 from HRSA. We were able to finish the study. We enrolled 600 babies with bronchiolitis. And guess what? Steroids had no effect because now we had the power of numbers, which it's not that the previous study was a bad study, but by chance alone, the two patient groups weren't equivalent. The group that showed benefit with steroids had a much more frequent family history of A to P, etc. in that, that study that we were trying to replicate. But now once you enrolled 600 patients, the two groups look equal and steroids had no effect. That was a major landmark in PCARN and really got us going. Yeah, I think you've kind of touched on a lot of key pieces. One, there's very few adverse events in pediatrics, so you have to have a large number size for that. Um, and then chance alone can change the way your outcomes are with small groups. What are some other advantages to these multi-center collaborative research projects? That's a, you know, it's a great question, Julian. I see there are advantages in various different realms. With regards to science, there is the power of numbers and there's also the power of generalizability. That is, we know there are certain diseases and responses that might course along racial, ethnic, or socioeconomic lines. But when you study something across the USA, it's then generalizable to the whole United States. So there's the power of numbers, but there's also the power of generalizability on a scientific level. From an educational standpoint, it's been extremely powerful because, you know, 
research development and mentorship are focused at a few highly academic centers and not all potential investigators have access to mentorship. So PCARN has developed also as a research training ground where junior investigators are working with more senior investigators and statisticians, and there's been tremendous amount of learning that has happened, so much so that now there are several studies ongoing in PCARN that are being done by former junior investigators that sort of went up through the PCARN system, shall we say, and have learned how to do big, impactful research. So those are two things that, for me, have been very important and very rewarding about PCARN. PCARN University. Yeah, PCARN <laughs> University. <laughs> right. What are some of the challenges to doing research in this way? So there are challenges, and I like to point to one particular example that demonstrates well the challenges. So the benefit of doing a single center study is that you have control of everything. You know all the people enrolling patients, and you make sure that patients get enrolled the exact right way. If not, you chase people down and make sure they're doing it. And so you have you know, control, but you don't have big numbers and generalizability. When you go to PCARN and do a big multi-center study, as I mentioned, you get the power of numbers and generalizability, but you lose control. And so that even though you have a protocol that's meant to be done this way, when you have it done in PCARN in lots of centers, you lose a bit of control because the investigators at those sites inevitably are not going to be as obsessive and give as much oversight as the lead investigators do at their site. So an example that I just like to show, I'll just tell briefly, is that there was a study led by Jim Holmes that I, I was the senior author on. It was a prediction rule for identifying children who need CT scans after abdominal trauma. And Jim and I had done a study in 2002 that we created a really nice prediction rule using a few clinical factors and a few labs. It's a really good rule. And we wanted to then validate that in PCARN. So we got a big grant from the CDC and did the study at 20 centers in PCARN. And the great thing is that we got 12,000 patients enrolled, which was fabulous, wide sort of generalizability. The problem is that the laboratory tests that were in the original rule were frequently not being performed at the other sites. So that the ultimate rule that resulted from PCARN was a rule just of the history and physical examination, which is a very good rule, but it wasn't exactly what we wanted to validate. And one other thing that I'll say, this actually adds to the strength of the rule. So the rule worked really pretty well. It missed a total of six patients with our outcome of interest, but four of the six misses were just from one institution. And for any of you out there who are hunting for the institution, they are not a part of PCARN anymore. So you don't know guesswork here. When we reviewed the case report forms, which are the data sheets that people fill out in the emergency department, you can tell that they were filled out somewhat haphazardly. Just, you know, check, 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 check. But we had to accept it as is, even though we knew that the data were somewhat suspect, because if we just threw out the data that we don't like, that would bias the study. So it just highlights, again, this issue of oversight. PCARN is great because you get numbers and generalizability, but you also lose a bit of the control. And that's kind of, in my mind, the big trade-offs between single-center and big PCARN multi-center. PCARN has given birth to a lot of babies here. What is your favorite child? <laughs> What's your yeah, favorite baby? Yeah. Well, as you know, Julia, you know, I have three 
research areas of interest. So, of course, I would say those. But the one that I think has probably been most important for PCARN is a study that's gone almost the full life cycle, and that's the head injury decision rule. Because what we did with the head injury decision rule, we created and validated at the same time a rule that subsequently has been validated many other times by others. Then we did an implementation trial using computerized decision support, showing that if you implement the uh, decision rule in the electronic health record, you can safely lower CT rates. So that was a really important study. And then we went a step further and we did a randomized trial of children who have a PCARN head injury risk factor, who some would CT, some would observe, and we did a randomized trial of shared decision-making in that group to see what is the impact of using a visual shared decision-making tool on decision-making and outcomes. So it's gone the full route in my mind. A lot of initial publications from the evidence generation. It's gone through the implementation cycle of the computerized decision support all the way through shared decision-making. So as an investigator, you get a sense of satisfaction because I primarily am an evidence generator. I do more of that than implementation science. But it's very satisfying to see something where the evidence has been generated, it's been implemented and shown to achieve the goals that you wanted it to, and that when a decision is not clear, you can use shared decision-making to at least enhance the family's confidence in the clinician and engage the patients and parents in a meaningful way. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful example of that. I could see why that's your favorite child over there. <laughs> Which one of your projects or your babies were most surprising? What surprised yeah. you the most? I've been surprised by small elements of a few. So I will say the bronchiolitis study that I mentioned earlier, we really didn't know which way that was going to go. We anticipated the results that we had because no one else had showed this tremendous benefit of steroids. But it was a very lovely surprise by the strength of the absolutely zero effect of steroids. So that was a fun surprise, and that got into a major journal because it impacts so many children. I've also been surprised in a less happy way in uh, a study where the data quality at a particular center or two was not what I wanted so that we had to intervene and at times remove a site from a study, which was very surprising because all the sites in PCARN are high-quality sites. But when you're doing rigorous research where children's health and lives ride on the results of the research, you have to be brutally meticulous. So at times we've had to not reprimand, but um, remediate sites and at times remove a site. So those are, I guess, two of the surprises in PCARN's history for me. So where do we go from here with PCARN? We've heard about its history in the past, some of the important studies. What does the future look like for PCARN? The future of PCARN, first of all, looks really bright to me because we have had a, a lot of these junior investigators come through the system, and now they have become seasoned investigators. For me, the big things coming forward in PCARN, first of all, is what you do, that is, dissemination and implementation. We now have a cadre of people like you, Julia, and others who have the science and education around dissemination and translation because PCARN is at a place in its late adolescence now 
we're 19 years old, where we have a lot of evidence, but we have to make sure that people are following the evidence. So this notion of implementation is really big, and PCARN is going big into that in this next cycle, both in terms of implementation science, which means to me, what is the best way to get evidence to the clinician? What is the best way to disseminate the results widely so as to best affect a population? And the second place where we're going, which is very exciting to me, is global. Because first of all, at my very root, I'm an internationalist. What can I say? We're a big melting pot here, and I'm no different. My parents are from Brazil. I have a daughter from Guatemala. My nephews are Thai. And I believe that diversity is a strength of our country and of science. So I love the fact that PCARN is going international. We're part of a global research network, as you know, called PERN, Pediatric Emergency Research Networks. And we now have two studies that have the potential to become randomized trials in a global setting. Really excited about both of these things. Thanks, Nate, for sharing that. I do think it's important that we have a little background on where our evidence is coming from and why. Okay, all you clinicians out there, Nate says that we have a lot of evidence, but we need to get it into the hands of our clinicians. So we want to hear from you. What is the best way investigators can get the evidence into your hands? How do you keep up with the onslaught of data being generated? Is it lectures and conferences, tweets, podcasts, friends? Let us know on social media at EM Pulse Podcast. And if you want to keep up with all of PCARN's publications, check out Academic Life and Emergency Medicine's cool app called P3. This app is a living catalog of PCARN publications, which is updated as they publish and boils it down to what you need to know on a shift. You will find a link to that in our show notes. Thanks to everyone for listening and see you soon for an entertaining review of our year. Mm-hmm.